The following message comes to you from the pulpit of Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church in Ackerman, Mississippi. We invite you to visit Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church for worship services every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. Macedonia is located at 11 Staten Road on Highway 15, five miles north of Ackerman, Mississippi. For more information about Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church, you may visit our website at macedonia-pbc.org. I invite you to turn to John chapter 2 this evening, John chapter 2, and we'd like to continue looking at the Gospel of John, and this evening we'd like to look at Jesus' first miracle, which is the turning of the water into wine at the, we- <clears throat> at the wedding in Cana of Galilee. John chapter 2, we'll go ahead and read verses 1 through 11. And the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there, and both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus said unto him, They have no wine. And Jesus saith unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. His mother saith unto the servants, Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. And there were set there six water pots of stone after the manner of the purifying of the Jews, containing two or three firkins apiece. And Jesus saith unto them, Fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he saith unto them, Draw out now, and bear unto the governor of the feast, and they bear it. When the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, and knew not whence it was, but the servants which drew the water new, the governor of the feast called the bridegroom and said unto him, Every man at the beginning does set forth good wine, and when men have well drunk, then that which is worse. But thou hast kept the good wine until now. This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifested forth his glory, and his disciples believed on him. Here at the beginning of chapter 2, said the third day, there in John chapter 1, we have these interactions with uh, Andrew and Peter and then Philip and Nathaniel. And um, don't necessarily know if it's the third day after those interactions, but anytime we see a third day reference, our, our eyes perk up a little bit. Don't know if that's any significance, but regardless, on the third day, yeah. from whatever the beginning of that time period was, the third day, <clears throat> there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Mary was there. And then Jesus was called to the marriage and his disciples were called to the marriage. Now, I want to provide a little bit of framework here for you, hopefully. Um, The Jewish wedding ceremony, uh, but not just the wedding ceremony, but particularly the, uh, the wedding feast, was not a couple hour of event in the afternoon that we're used to. It was a week-long celebration. And they provided a wine throughout that, that whole week. And it appears that Mary was uh, an, important, uh, an important person in this wedding because these servants come and notify her that they're out of wine. And then she's the one who goes and tells Jesus. Uh, but these servants go and they notify Mary that they're out 
of wine. I think it's probably reasonable to assume that at a minimum, this is a, a relative of Mary. And therefore, if it's a relative of Mary, then it's probably a relative of Jesus as well. But regardless, Mary was a very uh, central figure in this wedding, it appears, because the servants came and notified her that they were out of wine. Both Jesus was called and his disciples, they were both from that area, and they knew, knew them as well. And one of the very important things, I guess you could say, in the midst of this um, usually week-long marriage feast is is have providing food for your guests, but also wine for your guests. And, and it would have been a public embarrassment at the beginning of the marriage of this couple for them to have run out of wine in the midst of the marriage feast. Right. It's kind of hard for us to kind of wrap our, our head around that. We might get a little bit of uh, context of that. I mean, it would be a little embarrassing um, if you... Uh, invited people to a big reception after your wedding, and then half the people don't have anything to eat. That'd be a little embarrassing, right? right? But then there's a little bit more pressure when you got a week-long feast. So it's not just that uh, he turned the water into wine, but but he sh- he saved this couple, most likely um, a good chance, some of his natural kindred, from public embarrassment. I mean, if you think about it, this is the kind of thing that people would make fun of them for a very... You, you know that this is the couple? <laughs> These are the guys that ran out of wine uh, when the whole community was coming to celebrate. So Jesus turns the water into wine, but he saves this couple from public embarrassment. Right. And I think that's a beautiful reminder as well. So here, this wedding in Cana... Um, they run out of wine and they go and they notify Mary, verse 3. And when they wanted wine, they had ran out of the wine. The mother of Jesus saith unto him, they have no wine. They tell Mary about it. And she goes and she does the right thing. That certainly should be our response as well. Uh, I have a problem. I have something that's, that's a limitation, something I'm, I'm lacking of supply that I need. So I immediately go to Jesus Christ and tell him of that need. You know, uh, this is the beginning of miracles. The very first miracle that he um, that he performed. Um, so people outside of Mary, if you will, um, Mary had seen a lot of things early on, and and she, Scripture consistently says she pondered them in her heart. Uh, so she had more understanding about who Jesus was and the power that he had, uh, but the other people didn't have that yet. Okay, They had not seen the miracles yet. But she knew that this was a problem because of things she had pondered in her, <clears throat> in her heart over the years. She knew that this was a problem that Jesus was the most well-suited to deal with. So she immediately goes and tells him, and that certainly should be our response as well, to immediately go and, and tell Jesus when we run into these limitations and shortcomings and when we stand in need. And then Jesus responds to her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. And that sounds a little brusque at first reading, but the word woman there is more of a um, title in that day of more like ma'am. It's not disrespectful in the way that we would use it today. What have I to do with thee? 
Mine hour is not yet come. It's very interesting. This is the beginning of miracles. He chooses. Hey, obviously, Jesus could have chosen uh, any venue to uh, perform his first miracle. And there's tremendous significance in that. And we hope to make sure that we highlight that. <clears throat> but this is the beginning of miracles, the beginning of miracles that would publicly manifest. Remember the uh, purpose of the Holy Spirit inspiring the Gospel of John and the way that that he did um, is for the purpose of, of focusing in on these specific miracles that are not in any other gospel. This is not in any other gospel to proclaim uh, the manifestation of Jesus's deity. Okay. So woman, what have I to do with thee? My hour is not yet come. This is the beginning of miracles, but there was going to come a time where his, the fullness of his hour, you know, th- these were, um, um, these were miracles, both this one and the rest of them highlighted in the Gospel of John. Those are miracles that prove his deity. But there was going to be the culmination of that on the cross and then ultimately in his resurrection. That is what ultimately proved his deity. Right. Okay? And he had even told, um, there have been many references from other people, but even Jesus had told Mary up to this point, she knew there was an hour coming. She knew about this when other people didn't. And part of that moment, that hour that all of not just Jesus' natural life, but all of eternity had been building up to, that hour of Jesus on the cross, it's depicted as Jesus drinking the dregs of the the cup of God's wrath. Picture of drinking wine And then also we know from our observance of the Lord's Supper that Jesus' blood is depicted as wine, right? Mm -hmm. So this is a different setting, but there's there's wine being involved and and that wine is ultimately pointing toward, in many instances, his death and shedding of blood on our behalf. And he said, mine hour is not yet come. His mother saith unto the servants, whatsoever... He saith unto you, do it. That's good advice. That's pretty much discipleship, by the way. <laughs> we don't want to uh, spend too much time on this, but that's pretty much discipleship. Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. Amen. Good advice. And there were set, <clears throat> set there six water pots of stone after the manner of the purifying of the Jews containing two or three firkins apiece. Firkin is fairly close to... A Hebrew bath, that's a unit of measurement uh, in the Hebrew system. That's roughly four gallons, so six water pots, eight to 12 gallons each to kind of give you a little bit of a framework there. Eight to 12 gallons each, so maybe 48 to 72 gallons as a whole, okay? But I want you to get the idea, though. These water pots of stone are not sitting over here in the corner, and they are nice, purified water that's sitting here for people to be drank. These water pots were for the purpose of people cleansing their hands as they came into the wedding. Okay, so I want you to get that picture. This, this is not nice uh, Brita purified water, right? Uh, th- this is not the kind of water that we're used to drinking. This is nasty, dirty, defiled water. Okay, And no one would have went and drunk out of that. 
I mean, we're just talking about the water itself before it was changed into wine. Uh, no one's going to go over there and drink out of these water pots of stone. No. Nobody, because that's nasty, defiled water. And he tells the servants, <clears throat> he tells the servants, you fill the water pots with water and they fill them up to the brim. Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. We're told in the New Testament, whatsoever your hand finds to do, do it heartily as unto the Lord. Whatever the Lord calls you to do, do it to the very best of your ability. Amen. Right? Um, I think it was one of the ladies that was um, washing the feet of Jesus, and many people were um, speaking negatively of her, but I think one of the most beautiful commendations in all the New Testament, Jesus said unto her, she did what she could. She did what she could. She did the very best that she could in that moment. She offered the best that she had to the Lord, which in that instance was her hair, her glory, washing Jesus' feet with her own glory. She did what she could. She did the very best that she could. And these servants had received a command from the Son of God, and they followed that command to the absolute best of their ability. They filled those water pots all the way up to the brim. Right? And certainly we should do the same. And he tells them, he saith unto them, Draw out now and bear unto the governor of the feast. I think one of the most impressive things <clears throat> in this entire account is the faith of these servants. Amen. Okay? Um, you know, it's, it calls them servants. Um, it's possible that they were indentured servants, um, but I'm going to look at them for a moment <clears throat> as more of the um, the wedding staff that are working the wedding. Okay, um, how do you think? Because they're they're going to you know they have a supervisor who here is called uh, the governor, the governor of the feast. You know he's the one who's who's in charge of the whole thing the manager of it, and the, these servants are, for all practical purposes, working for the governor of the marriage feast. Now, not only would you get fired from your job that day, but there's a good chance that not only would he never hire you again, but when people found out that you went up to your boss, the governor of the feast, and you're supposed to be bringing him wine, and you bring unto him nasty, dirty water that people have washed their hands in, not only is he going to throw you out that day, no one is ever going to, quote, hire you for a wedding ever again, right? That took a tremendous amount of faith to offer that to the governor. And they, you know, we don't have a lot of the information here of the interaction, uh, I actually, I, li I like how succinct it is. Jesus told them to do it. They did it, and they took it right to the governor. But some, many times scripture kind of summarizes things for us. Uh, I feel like 
that in their own mind, they probably had, you know, uh, we hope that we usually reach the conclusion of faith, but we, we always have those initial moments where it was like, no, wait a minute, he wants us to give that dirty water to the governor of the feast. And I think what's impressive about this is, you know, he didn't tell them. I really like uh, red letters in my Bible. Um, I like having Bibles that have the red letters. It just fits my eye, okay? Um, but if you have that, there are no red letters that says, when you present this to the governor of the feast, it's going to be wine, okay? For all they knew, for all they knew, they were offering dirty, nasty water to the governor of the feast. He didn't tell them that that... Uh, he didn't tell them that he was going to change the water to wine, which, by the way, is another very important principle in walking by faith. Amen. He is not, God is not commanded to tell you the outcome for your obedience, Amen. right? He told you what to do. He told you, and it's not up to, to you to, to uh, say, okay, Jesus, that makes no sense at all. I want you to explain to me how this is all going to turn out. no. You do what he tells you to do in the moment to the best of your ability. And guess what? You never know. Water may turn into wine, right? Yeah. We offer unto him our little bit loaves and fishes, and he's the one who takes that and feeds 5,000 people with it. Okay? But these servants obeyed the command of Jesus simply and in faith without knowing the outcome. And in boldness, they present this, what they still possibly still think is water, they offer it to the governor of the feast. And you, you got to know they're a little nervous, right? I mean, when he's, he's either going to, he's most likely going to spew it out of his mouth. I mean, I don't necessarily think they saw uh, it turn there uh, because I think that would take away from some of the significance of, of their faith that's being exhibited here. But they... Follow the commands of Jesus. He doesn't tell them what's going to happen on the front end. They offer in faith um, the water, dirty, defiled water to the governor of the feast. <clears throat> and he didn't know anything about this. Okay, the governor of the feast did not know they'd run out of water, uh, ran out of wine. He did not know that he was um, drinking what was formerly dirty, defiled water, and then he, he partakes of it. And you got to know the servants were a little bit nervous there for a minute. But then what he says is he said, uh, <laughs> he drinks of it, and then he immediately says, go get the bridegroom. Probably in a little bit of an angry voice. And they're like, oh boy, here we go, <laughs> right? You know, we thought we were going to get away with it. He didn't say, oh man, he didn't tell them in the moment. Man, this is the best wine I've ever tasted. He, he yells to the servants, go get the bridegroom. <laughs> and then he tells the bridegroom, a little brusquely, every man at the beginning does set forth good wine. And when men have well drunk, then that which is worse. But thou hast kept the good wine until now. So what would happen in the middle of this uh, extended week-long feast is, is that at the first couple days, you'd, you'd use your really good wine, right? But then people a little bit get, get a little bit lazy, you know, get a little bit, the edge is off a little bit, and uh, you're, you're going to use your 
kind of lower tier wine toward the end of it. So, you know, people, their taste buds aren't as heightened by the end of the week. You know, not saying everyone's walking around drunk, but uh, their taste buds aren't quite as heightened later on. So the natural discourse is you're going to use your best wine at the end. You're going to use your worst wine at the end. And it kind of gives the impression that this uh, marriage feast has been going on for a little bit. This is not day one or two. This is, you know, day three, four, five, maybe day five. And he said, what are you doing? What are you, why are you saving the best wine until the end of the feast? Well, the reason why this is the best wine is because it's been made wine by the Son of God, right? Amen. Which another, I believe, important point uh, in regards to just God's creative power. Whenever I read this text, uh, I believe it's incumbent upon, upon us to make this point. Um, I it takes, it takes a period of time. It, by, the, by the natural course of the laws that God has placed in his creation, it would take a set amount of time for those grapes to ferment to turn into wine. Amen. And the longer that wine ferments, theoretically, the better it's supposed to taste. So if this is uh, the probably the best tasting wine that this governor of the feast has ever had, you would assume that this tastes like very aged wine. Let's just let's just say twenty years. Twenty years. I doubt back then they were in such luxury that they let anything ferment for that long. But but just for our frame of reference, uh, th- this is some this is some aged twenty year old wine. And I believe that if you put this under a microscope and if science, scientists tested it, it would have the exact same biological composition as any type of wine that has fermented over the course of a 20-year period. Right. But the, the way that it reached this, this if you tested it and you looked at it, anyone without this kind of knowledge would have, would have reached the conclusion that this wine has followed the natural course of of God's natural laws of fermentation and this is a 20 year old wine right but instead it was made that perfect by the command and the miracle of a sovereign God and and we need to understand that especially when we go back to the book of Genesis and understand that God not only did he make a full-grown man in Adam I believe he made a full-grown earth. Amen. So the way that natural laws progress now, okay, you could test a, a rock and say, you know what, the way things operate nowadays, it must have taken so many millions of years or whatever for this rock to get where it is now based on the way things operate now. But God made a full-grown earth, right? And he made a full-grown man. Adam was commanded on the day that he was created to be fruitful and multiply. He had uh, all of the physical ability to be fruitful. He was a a grown man. And, And today, if in a biological sense, if they had tested Adam, they would have said, you know what? He's been alive for 30 to 40 years, right? And, and in the same way, 
God created, in my opinion, a full-grown earth that, that was already able to be fruitful and multiply in an earth sense. Yes. Those trees, same way, same way. You look at some of those trees that were created in the garden, and you would have said, this tree's been around for 15 years. No, it was created in a moment by the sovereign voice of God. Amen. And in the same way, I believe it's very important to understand because so many people get confused uh, with the, the science falsely so-called here in the world today that is trying to commingle uh, this science falsely so-called and the creation account. It's very simple. It's very simple. God created a full-grown earth. Yes. And, it, and the way things uh, progress today is different and, and also, it's the way things progress today is significantly different than the way things were and the way they progressed before the flood, too. That's another very important benchmark that you have to take into account. But don't get confused when people do some test on a rock and they say, oh, this is a so many thousand, billions of year old rock. Well, yeah, based on your limited test, yeah. God created that rock. And, and it may look like it's a million years to you, but you, it, it was created in a moment at the voice of Almighty God, okay? The sovereign creative power of Almighty God. <clears throat> so Jesus saves the day, right? He... Mm-hmm. he uh, Restores, uh, it protects this uh, this couple from the from the shame of uh, public embarrassment. We see the faith of Mary and the faith of the bold faith of these servants to follow the command of Jesus solely at his uh, at his command, not necessarily knowing the outcome, and their willingness to uh, to obey him in faith. And this is the beginning of miracles. Verse eleven: the beginning of miracles. Did Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifested forth his glory, and his disciples believed on him. Now, uh, I think that after the fact, this story got around, right? I mean, just like um, was always the case, Jesus would he'd heal somebody and then he'd say, Now, don't tell anybody about it, don't tell anybody I'm the Son of God, don't well. He may have told the servants and Mary to not tell them, but if, if I'm the servant, I'm going telling everybody, right? I mean, th- those are just hard commands to obey. <laughs> so eventually word got out. Word got and other people found out about this. But in the moment, it was really just Mary and the servants and Jesus. But obviously, word made, uh, uh, the story made its way to the disciples, okay? Notice the two outcomes, the two specific outcomes of this first miracle. Now understand, these men, they've been called. They don't fully understand uh, exactly what they've been called to. And this first miracle is one of the things that is intended to solidify their belief to follow him. So it manifested forth his glory, first of all, right? His power. His power of creation, his sovereignty over the natural elements, manifested forth his glory, and his disciples believed on him. Mm-hmm. It reiterated the disciples' belief that he truly is the Son of God, that I believe that he was when I left all and followed him. Now, 
I want us to think about the significance, the significance of this first miracle. Jesus could have uh, considered any setting. He could have done, done, you know, he healed so many people. He, um, he raised people from the dead. I mean, that'd be a pretty good way to kick off your ministry, right? Is raising people. But he waited a little bit later to do, to do that. Uh, so he, he chooses, of, of all the settings that he could have chosen, he chose a wedding. He chose a wedding to publicly declare that I am the Son of God come down to this earth. Yes. And I think that is so significant. Amen. That's so significant because the whole Bible, I hope that you have this perspective as you read the Word of God. The whole Bible is really an eternal love story. It is a romance between Jesus Christ and his bride. And this, this love story began all the way back before the foundation of the world. And he saw fit to love this bride that was not very good looking, right? right. That, that was defiled, that was dirty, that, that was dead, <laughs> that was ungodly. And then you have this, this love story play out all throughout the Word of God. And, and then the culmination of that at the second coming of the Lord. And how significant is it that Jesus Christ chooses to publicly begin his ministry, to publicly manifest his first miracle at a wedding? At a wedding. Uh, I, I wish that... Um, I could just play this message for you. I've heard uh, Elder David Crawford preach from this text many times uh, and powerful messages, as all of Brother David's are. But his, his title has, at least the ones that I've heard him speak on this, is The God of Festive Joy. Mm-hmm. Of Festive Joy. And God is holy. God is holy. And, and he is sovereign and and we, when we approach him, we need to understand that we are appro- approaching unto him. Um, and we are, um, to a large degree, we need to, in our hearts, take off our shoes because we're on Amen. holy ground. But at the same time, God intends not just his, um, his presence, but his worship and ultimately our lives to be lives of joy, joy. He's the God of festive joy. And what I, I mean, um, <laughs> I'm not a dancer, okay? We, we didn't really have uh, much music and dancing at our wedding. Uh, but back in the day, that's what you did, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, at, at this wedding, which is kind of hard for me to put, my, put myself in the shoes of, of uh, seeing Jesus here on this earth as God manifests in the flesh and realizing that not only did he drink wine at this wedding, he was out dancing yeah. with people in celebration of what? In celebration of the public manifestation of this blessed union that he had ordained at creation. Amen. And now we have two people that are, that are pressing into that and what God has, has joined, let not man put asunder. And he was partaking of the joys of this wedding feast. He was partaking of that wine that's, that's in so many places, depicting joy 
in, in all the word of God. And then this, uh, the wedding and the wedding feast. And, and just think about the son of God out there dancing with people in celebration of the love that's being manifested by the marriage of these two people here in, in Cana of Galilee. And he partook of that as, as the son of man. But the entire Bible, the entire story of redemption is this pursuit of Christ's bride and his redemption of that bride and his intention for that bride to have a fullness of joy in fellowship with the husband. We have that beautifully depicted there in the Song of Solomon and uh, Solomon and the Shulamite maid, which is uh, a, a natural love story, but it's pointing so much more toward the love story between Jesus Christ and his bride and then the, love, the reciprocal love back from the bride uh, to Jesus Christ. We know that um, Ephesians chapter 5, that Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. And God gave us marriage as a picture in miniature that ultimately marriage, it's a, it's a tremendous blessing and praise God for it. it's the closest we can get. The intimacy you have between a husband and a wife is the closest intimacy and love that you can have to experience Christ and the, his love toward his bride. But ultimately, it's just a picture in miniature because Ephesians chapter 5 says ultimately the one, uh, one man and one woman for one lifetime that they come together and they become one flesh. This mystery is really talking about Christ and his church. So the purpose of marriage, I mean, praise God for the blessings of marriage, but, but one of the reasons why he allows his people to enter into that is so you would have a better understanding of Christ's love for you, <laughs> a better understanding of Christ's love for the church. And everything that Christ has done, I mean, this is the kind of focus that we should have as husbands. Everything that he has done from before the foundation of the world has been for the focus and the intention and the best interest of his bride. Now, I'll tell you, sometimes it was difficult decisions, right? Sometimes it's been difficult for him to do the right thing for the best interest of his bride. But everything that Christ has done from before the foundation of the world, when he covenanted to come and die for her sins, has been in the best interest of his bride. Amen. And that will certainly be the case until his second coming. Let's go ahead. <clears throat> we need to conclude this. Let's go to, to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19. Again, we see all the way from, Gen from Genesis 1, <clears throat> we see man and woman created in the image of God. And he made them one flesh there on the sixth day. That all happened on the sixth day. So from Genesis 1 all the way to the last few chapters of Revelation... We have this picture of Jesus Christ and his bride. And this is the word of God that he inspired for us is his, is his love letter to his bride while they're separated. I really don't have enough time to explain this, but the Jewish wedding, uh, the, you have the culmination of it in the feast, but really the overall process of betrothal and then marriage and, and then uh, that they would be betrothed and then they would be separated for a period of time. And then the, the, uh, the husband would go back to the, 
to the Father's house to prepare a room for him and his bride. And that's why so much of this language is so significant where he says, I, I, I'm going to my Father's house. I, I'm preparing for you many mansions. I'm preparing a house for you. That, that, that would have made perfect sense to the Jews because that's how every marriage went. And then there would be an announcement. There would be an evaluation of the, uh, of the construction of that house. And then the father was the one who made the determination that the house was ready. And then the father would tell the son, all right, now it's time. Go get your bride. And then he would go and then there would be an announcement at different intervals. There would be a trumpet. You know, we're used to hearing about all these things uh, in, in relation to the second coming of the Lord. But that was all Jewish custom. Maybe. That there would be a, a friend of the bridegroom that was heralding. Remember there was a friend of the bridegroom that heralded the, uh, the first coming of Jesus Christ, right? That was John the Baptist. Well, there's going to be a, a friend of the bridegroom that's heralding the second coming. There's a shout and the voice of the archangel. You know what else there's going to be? There's going to be a trumpet. There's going to be a trumpet. All of that is Jewish imagery, okay? So... Jesus has been separated from his bride, and the bride is anticipating his return. And he did, she did not know the exact day that he would return, but, you know, from somewhere typically between 9 and 12 months. Uh, so if it was the first day, okay, I know he's not coming today. If it's the first month, I know he's not coming today. But when you get in that window between 9 and 12 months and you start seeing the, uh, the changing of the seasons and you start seeing these different things, you know that things are getting close. And that's why we need to be so vigilant, be, be aware of the world around us because there are, there are signs that we're getting, and, and at a minimum, I can say this definitively, we're closer than we've ever been, right? Well, we are close, the closest we've ever been to our salvation and the second coming of the Lord. But there, are, there were indications for that bride that her husband was becoming closer and closer and closer to his, and you, and you, see, you could just imagine that bride, the anticipation that began to build. Then you had the, bir the virgins that lined the way, and they were, when they heard the voice of the bridegroom, they heard that trumpet, they were supposed to go tell her. And you could just think about, you know, they, they, they spaced out the virgins. So then the first virgin would hear it, and then she would go, and then every virgin that came to tell her, the anticipation began to build and build and build. And, and by the way, in regards to that, the, the people that were notifying the bride of, um, of his second coming, you know, we, we trust the Spirit of the Lord to direct his people. But I believe the closer we get to that, the Spirit of God will be moving among the ministry to be boldly proclaiming to be ready. Okay? We will, we will not be called unawares <clears throat> based on the direction of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so that bride was anxiously anticipating the return of her husband. And now we have the culmination of all of that in Revelation chapter 19. In Revelation chapter 19, <clears throat> verse 7, Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor for him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife hath made herself ready. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? Uh, even in our, our wedding today, uh, we don't have time to get off into this, but really... Um, Back then in the Jewish ceremony and the Jewish way of doing things, it was not here comes the bride. It was here comes the groom. Okay? Mm -hmm. it, things were different in the Jewish ceremony. But it's interesting that it says here, the wife hath made herself ready. Well, even in our weddings today, the wife doesn't really make herself ready, right? Everybody else kind of gets ready. 
And Jesus Christ is the one who makes the wife ready. When that last child of God is born again, right? When, that, when the bride is now perfectly prepared. You know, the bride's still, she's not complete yet. But when that bride is finally fully prepared, that's when the father tells the son, all right, go get her. Go get her. That bride that you love from before the foundation of the world, the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, the wife have made herself ready. He says, return and go get her. To her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. For the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. And he saith unto me, right, blessed are they that are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, these things are the saying the true sayings of God. Verse 11, I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. This is the groom coming back. This is the groom coming back to get the bride. I saw heaven open behold a white horse and he that sat upon him was called faithful and true and in righteousness. He got judge and make war. We don't have time to read all this depiction of the, the Lamb of God's return. Verse 16, he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And he goes and, and he, he brings his bride back home, but he also destroys all the enemies of his bride too. The, uh, the beast and the false prophet and Satan that has been persecuting his bride, that he's been suffering. You know, as a, as a husband, you just get burned up anytime you see somebody doing something to your wife. And you know what? God, you want to talk about suffering, okay? People say, oh, Jesus is working all things together for your good. Listen, he is fuming in heaven. He's restraining, but he is fuming in heaven with things that he is, that is happening to his bride. And I'll tell you, all that fury is going to be poured out Amen. when he comes back. Because he, he, he's, he's, he that letteth will, he's letting right now. He's, he's holding back for his own purposes and for his own will. But I'll tell you, all of that persecution that has encountered his bride, it's all going to be poured out. It's all going to be poured out on the enemies of the bride, on the enemies of the church at his second coming. So the first miracle in Jesus's ministry is even he, as he was going day by day, he his mind was always focused on the cross. You see that? Amen. You know, my hour's not yet come. His, his mind was always focused on the cross. And I believe there's a real sense in which his mind has always been focused on his second coming. Mm -hmm. Because that, that was the whole purpose of it, right? The whole purpose of it was not just to die. The purpose of it was to bring the bride home. That was the whole, the whole purpose of the covenant to start with. <laughs> there were things that had to happen. His death had to, had to happen. To, uh, to redeem her and pay the penalty for her sin. But, but the whole purpose of everything was ultimately his second coming and bringing that bride back to heaven. And, and he begins his ministry with an announcement <laughs> that not only am I blessing this individual couple and building the faith of certain people, but my, my mind is, even at the beginning of my ministry, is focused on my second coming. When all of the elect family of God, they are going to be bidden to the marriage supper of the Lamb. That eternal marriage feast when we will have the perfect joy and fellowship with Jesus Christ for all of eternity. Lord Jesus, come quickly. We certainly anticipate his second and that perfect fellowship. I mean, we're so thankful that 
he condescends to us today and he, he allows us to reach out and touch the hem of his garment from time to time, but to have perfect fellowship with him. That's what we desire. Amen. That's what we desire. And we certainly pray if it's his will, it's his will that he would come quickly. We would have the privilege of seeing his second coming and ultimately fellowship eternally with the lamb and that eternal marriage feast with our beloved husband. We thank you for listening to today's message and invite you to visit Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church for worship services every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. Macedonia is located at 11 Staten Road on Highway 15, five miles north of Ackerman, Mississippi. For further information about Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church, you may visit our website at macedonia-pbc.org.